It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm your host, Blair Hodges. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. This is another installment of my podcast series on the Lives of Great Religious Book series from Princeton University Press. This is a series that takes important religious texts from around the world and tells their life stories. Leading experts examine the origins of religious texts like the Book of Genesis or Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, and then they trace how their reception, influence, and interpretation of these texts has changed over time. In this episode, David Gordon White joins me. He's a professor of comparative religion at UC Santa Barbara, and his book looks at the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. It's a collection of aphorisms that occupies a prestigious place among contemporary yogis in the United States. Its current success, though, uh, belies its humble origin, White says. The book's risen and fallen in prominence in India and in various places throughout the world for different Buddhist and Hindu communities. David Gordon White tells this story, and along the way we discuss what it's like for a scholar who has also been a practitioner to look at the transmission of scripture over centuries of time, and we examine scripture from an Eastern tradition in order to get a better understanding of the nature of scripture in general. It's David Gordon White on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali in this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. All right, we welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast, David Gordon White. He's the J.F. Rowney Professor of Comparative Religion at the University of California, Santa Barbara. How long have you been uh, teaching there, David? 17 years at Santa Barbara. Okay, so you've been there quite a while then. During that time, you've edited a book called Yoga in Practice, and then you also wrote a book called Sinister Yogis. And your latest book is the one that we're going to be talking about in the podcast today. It's about the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And uh, so that's the book we're talking about. It's part of Princeton's Lives of Great Religious Book series. And the Yoga Sutra is a text that I wasn't familiar with until I read your book. So a lot of my listeners are probably in the same boat. So I want to kind of lay some preliminary groundwork and uh, I'll probably need some of your help pronouncing a lot of the <laughs> the words too. So, yeah. um, so if you were to give kind of a back cover description of what the Yoga Sutra is, um, how would you describe what that text is to someone who wasn't familiar with it? It's 195 verses on practice of meditation as a means to calming the mind in order that the soul or the spirit be released from its um, mistaken identification with matter which comprises everything else in the world including the mind so i'll back up a little bit mm-hmm. yoga sutra is uh, the, uh, a foundational work of the philosophical school uh, of yoga in hindu india traditionally there are six such philosophical schools um Yoga is one of those six, and it's often paired with another school called Samkhya, which is a term that may be translated as enumeration. Um, Both yoga and Samkhya, and for that matter, all six of the schools have for their goal um, salvation, release of humans from suffering existence. Um, What they're released into is a question that is answered differently by the six different schools. In some cases, you're released into union with God. In the case of the yoga and samkhya schools, you're released from suffering existence, but there is no absolute out there to be released into. Uh, it's just the end of suffering, the end of identification of the self or the soul or the spirit with matter, which includes the body, uh, includes the mind, and includes houses and people and so forth. So it sounds like it kind of has like a metaphysical element to it in terms of talking about what the world is like, what what you know, how we fit into that, and also like a practice element that's sort of maybe trying to, and yoga, most people think of as, the, you know, what might do at uh, the gym or something, but but this is a more sort of organized practice around a, a more specific end, which is some sort of, as you say, salvation or release. Yeah. It's a metaphysical text before all else, as are the other five, the t- major texts of the other five schools. It is about man, the universe, and everything. Causation, salvation, uh, supernatural powers, which are not supernatural in the context of the system as it stands. And uh, just 
it was a theory of everything like our modern um, theoretical physics uh, theories of everything are. There are, should not be any internal contradictions and so forth. So, yes, it is a metaphysical text with embedded in it uh, 31 verses, if I'm not mistaken, on practice. So of the 195 verses, uh, 31 are on what's called the eight-part practice, Ashtanga Yoga. And those are basically this kind of step-by-step path that a practitioner would take in his or her meditation to realize in a, an immediate, non-discursive, non-conceptual way the freedom of their spirit or soul from matter. And so those eight parts of the practice are comprised of the inner and outer restraints, basically keep your body healthy, live a good life, um, posture, which is what most people consider yoga to be, mm-hmm. breathing, which also people know about. And then the other four are um, these in, um, deepening meditative states. So uh, pratyahara, uh, withdrawal of the senses, um, dharana, um, mm, uh, holding the mind uh, in, in a one-pointed concentration, dhyana, meditation, and samadhi, uh, total um, meditative uh, integration, which is kind of both the eighth part of practice and the final uh, result of that practice. Um, now, having said that, you could not pattern your modern day practice, either of postures or meditation, on the basis of the Yoga Sutra. Those sutras, those aphorisms, are so elliptical, so difficult to comprehend. They're basically just sort of you could say, hooks to hang your ideas on, to remember this is what I do next. But um, in and of themselves, they're, they're not a guide to practice. And I say that in spite or in the face of what most yoga gurus in the modern yoga world will say, which is that the Yoga Sutra is our guide to practice. They're saying that on the basis of incomplete information. So is it a text that um, the regular practitioners then would read with, with Christians? They, they read the, the Bible and they, they kind of get a devotional uh, lift out of that. Or with, with, with Jews, they read the Hebrew scriptures and, and their laws there and, and sort of the communities organized around that. So with this, is it a book that everyday practitioners of yoga then would read? Or is it something that, that they're more likely to encounter through a yogi or some sort of, of advisor, spiritual advisor? In the modern day context, it's a text that modern day practitioners turn to for guidance. And that's because the last 40 years, yoga gurus, both Indian and Western, have singled out the Yoga Sutra as a guide to practice. Um, In the traditional context of ancient and medieval India, there's virtually no evidence that it was used as a guide to practice as we understand it today. So this is a 20th and 21st century invention that is widely embraced, but nonetheless, it, it has no historical grounds. So at the Maxwell Institute, we focus on religious texts from a variety of different traditions, but here we've tended to focus on the texts of Judaism, um, Christianity, and some Islamic texts as well. And each of those traditions sort of have their own idea of what scripture is. I think scripture, using that word, it's a category that, that maybe maybe in the past I haven't reflected very deeply on. And reading more about your book sort of made me revisit that idea yet again. So I'd like you to talk about the Yoga Sutra and the concept of scripture. Um, a review that I read of your book referred to the Yoga Sutra as a spiritual text. and It didn't use the word scripture. And, and, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts of how it might compare to, say, a Christian's view of the Bible or a Muslim's view of the Quran or something like that. Sure. sure. Um, first, a little context. The Yoga Sutra is one of a, a hundreds of texts on yoga. Uh, and it, the, the, the philosophical school of yoga is one of a dozen or so major schools of yoga, each of which had its own text or texts of their foundational teachings. Now, what is scripture in Hindu or in Indian context? Um, in fact, that which has the most, um, that which is considered to be most authentic in Hindu India is that which was revealed orally, and therefore that which is tr- transmitted orally. And that that uh, category of teaching or revelation is called shruti, which means that which was heard, not which that which was written or that which was uh, read, but that which was heard. So 
of course, these things were committed to writing at a certain point. All other quote-unquote scripture in the Hindu and, generally speaking, South Asian context is called smriti, that which was recalled or remembered. We can translate that as tradition. So shruti is revelation, oral revelation. Smriti is recalled tradition. Both shruti and smriti are written down at a certain point, at which point they become something like scripture. But there's an important distinction uh, with respect to the Yoga Sutra, because the Yoga Sutra was not a revealed text. That there's, It makes no such claim. And until, again, the late 20th century, no Indian yoga teacher made the claim that the Yoga Sutra was a revealed text mm. by a god to an exemplary human or a sage or, or, or a guru of some sort. It was written by or compiled by a human named Patanjali, and there was never any debate about that until recent times where there's been sort of a Patanjali mythology that's been generated and claims to direct revelation, oral revelation. And that has led to a whole new body of practice among certain segment of yoga practitioners, which is to chant the yoga sutras, chant them in the precise Sanskrit, because according to this invented tradition, the Yoga Sutras were, in a sense, revealed by God to Patanjali, and continued. that continued revelation has been transmitted from guru to disciple across thousands of years. None of that's true in terms of what historical data tells us, but that is the, the um, modern-day, um, well, um, among a certain segment of the population, that's the modern-day uh, belief. And I want to get more into that question of origins a little uh, later on in the in the interview. Before we do, I'd like you to also talk about then you've separated the difference between something written, something revealed, uh, sort of a tradition versus revelation type of a thing. How about the idea of religion in general, right? Because um, a scripture we typically associate that with a with a religion. So it seems from what you're saying that that the Yoga Sutra maybe wouldn't have necessarily be understood as a quote-unquote religious text during certain uh, parts of its existence, and then in other times it would be more quote-unquote religious, but how would you understand it in terms of religion? It's a, it's a difficult term to define to begin with, but if you can maybe touch on that idea of how it would fit in with the idea of religion. Yeah, at different times, different periods in the history of um, South Asian religions, the Yoga Sutra has been taken to be a text in conformity with Hindu religion, and other times a text that was um, non-conform, non-conforming with um, orthodoxy. Uh, there was a period in the Middle Ages where the Yoga Sutras were singled out along with another group of texts as a heterodox, as not being proper to orthodox Hinduism. Uh, this in the most orthodox sort of manuals of Hindu practice of the time called the Dharma Sutras. Um, and then in other contexts and other places, uh, it, it, it was sort of um, uh, enshrined in the Hindu tradition. What's somewhat ironic is that the closer scholars look at the language uh, and teachings of the Yoga Sutras, the more they're inclined to see that it was in part a text that emerged out of a Buddhist context. Buddhism is not Hinduism, unless Protestantism is Catholicism, and <laughs> I don't believe the two are the same. Um, so even the Hinduness of the Yoga Sutra is up for, um, open to some scrutiny. And uh, in fact, we'll probably get back to this, but when Swami Vivekananda popularized uh, the Yoga Sutra in the West in uh, the turn of the 20th century, late 1800s, early uh, 1900s, uh, he singled it out because he saw it to be a text that transcended or was free of the trappings of religion. He saw it as a philosophical, scientific text that he could take to the West and present as an Indian mode of scientific rational inquiry that was not um, burdened with the uh, sort of trappings of religion. So uh, many voices, uh, many conflicting uh, interpretations of whether and or to what extent the Yoga Sutra is a religious as opposed to a philosophical text. I can't really, you know, make that fine-grained um, judgment for myself. I'm a historian and, and I'm interested in how people have made that judgment over time. And the answer is it's changed. 
Yeah, that's. I think that that speaks to the purpose of of your book here is that the idea of writing a biography of a book, uh, which is what this entire series is, is to look at the life of a book and. And, and I think the more you look at a book in terms of the different ways it's interpreted across time and in, in different places, different eras and different cultures will bring their own assumptions to the text. And that can change the text while also the text can help impact particular cultures. So, mm-hmm. so it ra- really raises that interesting question about whether a text like the Yoga Sutra has had an essential core to it that's preserved across these borders over time. And this is um, – a really interesting question. You you tend to, throughout the book, to sort of avoid the idea that there maybe is a fundamentally central core. Uh, but there is one point when when you find one interpreter whose interpretation you're particularly drawn to, and it's mm. almost as though you still kind of hope for the ability to uncover an essential core to the text. If you can talk about that, because I, I think it's a tendency that uh, that's really easy to fall back into, is to uncover the true core of a text without recognizing the ways it can be interpreted in many different environments. Yeah. Well, you're referring to Rajendralal Mitra's uh, 1884 uh, translation and study of the Yoga Sutra, which was a landmark uh, achievement. And... It, what I like about his translation and his um, his analysis of the text is that he is more concise than anyone prior to or um, posterior to him, in the sense that he does not slavishly follow the order of the sutras to just sort of giving a running to sort of give a running commentary of this sutra means X, this sutra means Y, this sutra means Z, but without connecting the dots. Instead, he he managed to somehow digest the teachings of the sutra and then give them back in a set of 17 philosophical points, which are much more amenable, at least to modern thinking, than the Yoga Sutras in and of themselves were. So it's much clearer the way he presents it. And what he's doing is he's presenting the teachings completely out of order from the way they're they're found in the Yoga Sutra itself. Um, So in that respect, yes, I I favor Mitra's reading. You you speak of an essential core. Um, Once again, the Yoga Sutra is a metaphysical work. It has a... One would hope that it would have a coherent set of uh, postulates that uh, and axioms that that don't contradict one another, and um, it's very hard to find that by just reading them from Sutra One to Sutra One Ninety Five. Mitra has sort of found a way to make that look coherent. Uh, I say look because the these were not perfect systems any more than modern uh, theories of everything by astrophysics if you can mm-hmm. as- accept that 99% of the universities com- of the universe is comprised of dark matter and and there it, that it's you know got 28 dimensions well then um, you're okay with uh, modern um, astro theoretical physics same thing with these these old indian physical mm-hmm. systems they they were not perfect and the yoga system perhaps was less perfect than some of the others um, as presented in the Yoga Sutra. That's David Gordon White. He's the author of the Yoga, a biography of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Is that I, Patanjali? Patanjali. I'm never going to get that right. He's the <laughs> author of a biography of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Um, so you've been referred to as a, a prolific and controversial scholar here. So uh, one reviewer that I uh, was looking at points out that uh, some readers who currently practice yoga themselves might be unsettled by some of your account because you debunk some of the so-called myths surrounding things like the text's origins or its centrality or, or lack of centrality to the to the tradition of yoga over the centuries. Do, do you think controversial is a fair description of your, your work or is that um, more uh, a polemical way of looking at, at what you've done here. No, it's a fair description. And, and I should add that this is my fourth book on yoga. You mentioned Sinister Yogis, which is the third. Prior to that, I wrote a book called Kiss of the Yogini, Tantric Sex in its South Asian Context. And prior to that, a book called The Alchemical Body, Siddha Traditions in Medieval India. And all four of the books treat uh, different schools of yoga in that sweep of history of yoga, and there were many yogas, 
going back to the second millennium BCE down to the modern times. And yes, I have deconstructed, you know, I didn't start any of these projects saying I'm going to, you know, rewrite the history of X, Y, Z. But in the process of doing the research and writing, in each case, I have come up with uh, contrarian readings of uh, these traditions that are contrarian not only with respect to um, the scholarly paradigms, but also popular uh, and in many cases the uh, the cherished beliefs of, of uh, you know practicing Hindus in India, uh, who because they are insiders, they of course want to view their tradition as timeless and unchanging. Uh, the same as it, when it was revealed to the sages to 4,000 years ago as, 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 um, as now. Uh, whereas as a historian, I have to look at how these traditions have changed over time, interacted with one another, interacted with foreign traditions in some cases. Uh, and in fact, there have been many yogas and you cannot square the circle. They are utterly different from one another. And the version that's being projected by the, the, the mainstream of the uh, yoga subculture nowadays is, is a, it's, a, it's a, a fragmentary one and in many respects um, historically uh, without basis. How about practitioner scholars? I mean, um, are there any scholars in the field that also practice yoga that have also had to confront, um, as you say, a deconstruction of some of the, the claims that some uh, yogis make? Uh, are you, do you work together with any of those? Have, have you uh, practiced yoga at all? What, what, what are your thoughts on a practitioner scholar's place in the conversation? I have practiced yoga. Um, in fact, you can see me in a raised um, uh, lotus posture on my uh, webpage at the university. Um, I know many practicing yoga scholars. I mean, it's a it's a relatively small field, the uh, yoga studies. There's perhaps a hundred of us all together, maybe more. And I would say a good half of the people who write on yoga also practice. Um, and um, I do address that in the second cha- first and second chapters of the book. Um, I believe that their analysis is somewhat skewed by the fact that they are practitioners. They, they really want certain things to be true about the Yoga Sutra as part of that tradition that, again, um, historical analysis would, to my mind, uh, uh, con- con- um, contradict. Um, this is not to say that much of their work is outstanding. They're, 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 they're the best at, for example, um, translating the, or providing a semantic field in which to locate the terms found in the Yoga Sutras. The very arcane uses of the Sanskrit terms in the sutras have to be can't just be understood by opening a dictionary. You have to find those same terms in other philosophical, religious contexts and sort of tease out a semantic range of that term to try to get to what it might have meant in Patanjali's time. And many of these scholar practitioners are just outstanding at that. But they're, they tend to be working from an assumption that the Yoga Sutra is a foundational scripture of yoga practice as they know it. And there I part ways with them. Overall, the book tells a story, again, the story of sort of the life of the Yoga Sutra. And you trace uh, the rise and then a fall and then a rise again of the Yoga Sutra. This is a text that that had a heyday and then sort of went away and then came back again. So let's talk about the origin first. This is a contested story. And maybe this is part of um, the controversial uh, area of study there is sort of how uh, the Yoga Sutra came about. So what's interesting is I've got a quote here that you write uh, in the book. Uh, You say, we can be certain of a number of things about the Yoga Sutra, that the book you have been reading is the reception history of a work that may or may not be titled the Yoga Sutra, that the author of that work may or may not have been named Patanjali, 
and that that work may or may not have been the subject of an original and separate commentary by a person probably not named Vyasa. Is that how you pronounce that? Yes. That's so, right. <laughs> so you start off by saying, well, I don't know, maybe none of this. So uh, yeah. talk about that, the origins and sort of these unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of origins, they're, they're, it's generally agreed that it's a compilation. It wasn't an original uh, text written by a, a single person or revealed to a single person by the divine. Quickly, uh, what, what kind of clues do they look at to, to, to discern that? Um, themes, uh, language uh, are the principal clues that they look at. Um, so, depending on which scholar you uh, adhere to, there, the Yoga Sutra is a compilation of between two and six different strands, or two and six different sources. The, the, the two-source theory is the one that has the most um, uh, adherence at present, and, and, and I've already referred to that, the, the two sources being uh, the hundred and... Uh, 60 or so verses on metaphysics and the 31 verses on eightfold practice ashtanga yoga um, it's fairly generally it's agreed that those were two separate sets of teachings that were put together um, but others would say there was many as six different sets of teaching that were compiled now was patanjali who is whose name is most often attached to the yoga sutra was he its original author um, I don't know if we'll ever know that. There, Patanjali is not that uncommon of a name in Sanskrit. There are two other important uh, commentaries uh, on other types of text written by a figure named Patanjali. Um, however, those commentaries were written uh, at about a thousand years distance from one another. So the dating of our Patanjali is difficult if he had anything to do with those other texts. Uh, one is the commentary on a medical text, the other a commentary on a grammatical text. Um, what date do you, do you put the Yoga Sutra at? Well, <laughs> somewhere between the 1st and 4th centuries of the Common Era, 1st and 4th centuries uh, CE. Um, for those who argue that it was actually more, that Patanjali and the original Yoga Sutra was more Buddhist than Hindu, it's the earlier date that is um, chosen around first century. For those who feel that it's a Hindu text and that Patanjali wrote his own commentary to that text and used a kind of pen name, Vyasa, which means simply the editor, uh, to that commentary, uh, then it's the fourth century date that um, people would claim. Um, so, yeah, right from the start, the, the origins of the Yoga Sutra are murky. That's how, not so unusual. In how India. about the, the oral element? Because that's one of the things that I think some current practitioners would point to is to say, well, you know, he, David's talking about the, the written version of it, but there, there's this oral tradition because it was a chanted uh, mm-hmm. thing. So what about the oral um, that's something we obviously can't recapture, right? Because we we, we only right. have the written text. That's right. Yeah. So you can only go so far with claims of oral uh, transmission because they they don't leave a trace. Um, but what does leave a trace are references to oral transmission, and you have this rich commentarial literature. Uh, there are about a dozen major commentaries on the Yoga Sutras written over a period of about. 15 centuries, um, and then there are some, uh, several minor commentaries. Uh, there are works of other philosophical schools, there are, is literature, there's any number of sources one can go to to find references to the teachings of the Yoga Sutra and how they were transmitted. And nowhere is it said that this is something that's transmitted orally, transmitted by chanting. There's no question. I mean, just that, on the other hand, the word sutra generally means uh, an aphoristic teaching that requires a commentary, which is often given orally by a guru to that guru's disciples. Because the sutra is like a string, right? That's kind of That's what right. the word means. That's correct. It's like a thread upon which are hung pearls, and each pearl is one of those 195 aphorisms. Um, but um, there just isn't much of a there there in terms of the 
oral transmission of the Yoga Sutras specifically. So in the absence of that, we can't assert that it was transmitted orally. And again, because it wasn't classified as revelation, there would have been no perceived uh, requirement to transmit it orally. Uh, only shruti, only revelation is required to be transmitted orally, and Yoga Sutra is not shruti. Um, furthermore, as a sidelight, there are many other, we can call them scriptures on yoga, that over the centuries were considered to be more important than the Yoga Sutras. Uh, and there as well, we, we have this disconnect between the modern interpretation and, and earlier ones. Uh, the, the teachings on yoga in the Bhagavad Gita are considered to be revelation because the god Krishna revealed them in that text. And then there are other several other works on yoga that, while not revelation perhaps, had a greater uh, following than the Yoga Sutras for many centuries. Um, now, shall we get back to the sort of the rise and fall and rise again? Yeah. So, you, so yeah, yeah. So that's kind of it then. And, and yeah. part of part of the rise and then the fall, I think, is is associated with the, the different theistic and non-theistic ways that you, that you trace uh, mm -hmm. throughout your book of interpreting the text. So people sometimes yeah. read the book as though it includes a deity of some kind. Uh, mm -hmm. Others didn't. And so, right. so in talking about the rise and fall, um, talk about those theistic and non-theistic ways of of reading. That's very difficult. Um, the earliest commentator, if he was an individual distinct from Patanjali, Vyasa, um, wherever the, the term that the key term here that may or may not be construed as a reference to deity in the Yoga Sutras is Ishvara. It's a word that means Lord or Master. At the time that the Yoga Sutras were written or compiled there in those first centuries of the Common Era, the term Ishvara generally meant a human master or lord, a king, a prince, a warlord, something like that. It's only toward the end of that period that it starts to be used to be applied to a deity. So you have many references in earlier literature to Ishvara in the plural, lots of masters, lots of lords. Um, and um, it's only in this sort of pivotal period in which the Yoga Sutras were probably compiled that Ishvara begins to have the sense, or begins to be applied to God. Uh, and another source for that transition is the Bhagavad Gita that I mentioned a moment ago, which is a revealed text, in which Krishna makes himself, he calls himself the Yogishvara, the master of yoga. Well, he's a divine master of yoga because he's God. So in that respect, we could say, well, okay, that word Ishvara here means a god of yoga. But Vyasa, the original commentator on the Yoga Sutras, does not say that. He says Ishvara is simply a, an enlightened being, uh, a master, a teacher, whom one seeks guidance from, whom one venerates, but not as a god, because he didn't create the universe. Uh, he will not destroy the universe. Uh, he is simply a, a figure with uh, great insight, who has never been subject to the trammels of suffering existence that other humans have been subject to. Um, so that interpretation of that word in the Yoga Sutra, originally clearly not considered to be a deity, but then as you move forward through time, and particularly from the, about the 12th century onward, where another school of philosophy called Vedanta um, was at adapted to the um, most widely popular form of theistic, or I should say, most widely popular form of Hindu theism. Uh, this is also in India as well. That's right. It's also in Hindu India as well. Uh, Hindu theism is basically built upon the Vedanta school's understanding of the universe as being composed of God and nothing else, with all creatures a part of that God, and only cosmic illusion separating creatures from God. It's the illusion that creatures have that they are somehow separate from God because they have, they think, separate bodies and so forth, that keeps them separate from God. But in fact, God is within every one of us in the form of a little miniature form of himself, a spark of life. Um, and that is 
our true essence. And as soon as we realize that, then we are one with God as we always already were, in fact. That's at total odds with the teachings of Samkhya and yoga philosophy, which say there is no absolute, and all there is is a multiplicity of souls or spirits trapped in matter, and the goal of practice is to release the spirit from matter, but not release it into an absolute, into an Ishvara. But as you move forward in time, that Vedanta philosophy paired with Hindu theism became the only game in town. It, it, it was a tidal wave that engulfed all the other philosophical systems, with one ex exception, which was Nyaya logic, because you still needed the system of logic to know how to develop an argument and, and debate an argument. And so it continued to be taught in Hindu seminaries uh, well beyond sort of the death of all the other systems. So okay, so that's a good that's a good general overview. Now, how does the Yoga Sutra itself, fitting into that story, have mm -hmm. its rise and then fall, sort of mm -hmm. disappear off the radar? Yeah, well, until about that twelfth century, for, for about four centuries from the seventh, uh, five centuries from about the seventh of the twelfth, the Yoga Sutra was treated with great seriousness and approbation by major Hindu commentators. It was referenced by philosophers and theologians from other Indian schools, uh, considered to be important and, and um, significant. And it was actually translated into two foreign languages, which I don't believe any other Indian philosophical text was or has been since back in the 11th century. It was translated into Arabic and Old Javanese. Uh, it was also adapted uh, into another, um, the works of um, commentators from another important South Asian religion, uh, Jainism. There are two Jain commentaries on the Yoga Sutra that were written in that same period. So that, the, the, the Yoga Sutra enjoyed a, a period of great respect and uh, general um, dissemination during that five century period. But towards the end of that period, we see several sources beginning to tweak the teachings of the Yoga Sutra to make them conform to Vedanta philosophy and Hindu theism. And you can only change something so far before it becomes something else. And that's what the history of the Yoga Sutras from that 12th century period forward are basically a chronicle of the gradual um, engulfing of yoga philosophy within Vedanta philosophy, under which circumstances yoga philosophy is so denatured that it, it no longer is yoga philosophy. So the later commentators on the Yoga Sutra were basically reading against the original teachings. There's a whole body of Hindu scripture called the Puranas that also did the same thing. And those would have been the guides to practicing Hindus, much more so than philosophical commentaries. And the accounts that the um, Puranas give of yoga is even as they continue to apply certain terms from the Yoga Sutras, a purely Vedantic one. It's about how to find union with the God within. Furthermore, those, those um, Puranic sources do not mention Patanjali Mm -hmm. uh, they basically censor his name uh, from their accounts of yoga philosophy and yoga practice. So here we have a text then that had a, a pretty substantial following and then sort of dropped off the radar. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to take a break really quick, and when we come back, we'll talk about the the rise of the Yoga Sutra. I'm speaking today with David Gordon White. Uh, he's in California today, and he wrote a book, a biography of the Yoga Sutra. We'll take a break and be right back. Hey, this is Blair Hodges. First, I want to thank you for listening to the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm interrupting my own interview to invite you to help me out. I'm not asking for a lot. I'm just asking you to take a moment to rate this show in the iTunes store. Even better, write a review in the iTunes store and tell us why you listen to the podcast. Or share a link to the episode on your Facebook wall. Tweet it. Burn a CD for your folks. Send up smoke signals. If you rate the Maxwell Institute podcast in the iTunes store, that's the simplest way you can help us. But I also hope that you enjoy these interviews enough to let a few of your friends know about us, too. Thanks again for listening. We're back with 
David Gordon White. He's the author of a biography of the Yoga Sutra. Now, we just talked a little bit about the dis, sort of the disappearance culturally of, of the Yoga Sutra, but it, but it made a comeback. It's sort of the comeback kid of the yoga texts. And, and I, I want to talk about how that happened. Right. So um, the Yoga Sutra drifted into oblivion um, between about the 15th and 19th centuries. Um, um, evidence for that is the fact that when they were quote unquote rediscovered uh, by an English civil servant, a British Orientalist named Henry Thomas Colebrook uh, in the early part of the 19th century, um, there were virtually no Yoga Sutra manuscripts extant in uh, Indian archives. Um, in contradistinction to manuscripts on Vedanta, that philosophical school that more or less engulfed Yoga Sutra, or the Yoga School that I referred to earlier. So, um, Colebrook um, was one of the British Orientalists. He was one of the first non-Indians trained in Sanskrit. He became a, an accomplished Sanskritist. And he was able to read the Yoga Sutras in the original, and he wrote a short account of them and yoga philosophy in uh, 1823. And that was sort of the first blip on the radar screen of this more or less lost tradition for all intents and purposes. So and there's sort of colonization, right? Like, so the, the mm -hmm. British are sort of over there colonizing India, and then this particular person gets interested in the culture. Were, were there pragmatic reasons to do that, or was he just sort of interested in the culture himself? Yeah, no, there was a pragmatic reason. Uh, when the British East India Company basically was granted um, jurisdiction over eastern India uh, at, in the late 18th century, they realized they had to somehow um, uh, draft laws and, and, and enforce justice. And um, they didn't want, they didn't think British law would work too well there. So they decided to um, adapt uh, to the reigning legal systems, those of the Muslims and of the Hindus uh, in India. For Muslim law, it was fairly easy because the, the predecessor, actually at the time of the British, the, the Mughals were still ruling much of India and they were a Muslim empire and they had a very uh, uh, developed uh, law code and the British could just simply revert, refer to that law code. For the Hindus, it was harder because their Hindu... Uh, rule was was kind of spotty in India at that point. There were still pockets of Hindu kingdoms, but there were there were not an empire. A hint there was not a Hindu empire by that time. And the British decided that they couldn't just base their interpretation of Hindu law on modern day practice. That would be too kind of scattershot. So they 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 felt they had to go back to the sources. And there were Hindu law books, but they were written in this language, Sanskrit, which the British had no inkling of. And so at first they relied on the traditional Indian Hindu scholars called pundits. That's where we get our word pundit from. Mm. Uh, for interpretation and guidance in uh, the Hindu law, which the Shastras and the British called it the Shastra. Um, but after oh, a dozen or so years, the British realized that these um, traditional scholars were they weren't that clear about their own sources either, so they figured, the British did, that they'd better learn Sanskrit and read the original text themselves. So it was out of a need to render justice as equitably as possible that the British stumbled upon Sanskrit, uh, the language of traditional Hindu uh, religion, law, medicine, everything, just as Latin was in, in Europe uh, in the medieval and pre-modern periods. And um, so Colebrook was one of those early scholars. And in fact, he, he was one of the scholars. In fact, he did complete the project of writing the British law code based on Indian uh, Hindu sources. But in the process, he got interested in these other bodies of tradition that he uncovered. And he was a, um, an avid uh, devourer, a collector of uh, manuscripts uh, and most of those manuscripts were of the philosophical and religious sort, in addition to the legal documents. And um, that's how he eventually was drawn into um, laying out the basic um, the, the basic lines of uh, ancient Indian religion and philosophy. So about 20, 30 years into his own apprenticeship in 
the Sanskrit tradition, he he tackled the six schools of philosophy, and he began with uh, Samkhya and Yoga in 1823. So then, sort of, yeah. toward more toward the end of the 19th century, then there was sort of this renaissance in um, in the developing academy, and this idea of world religion mm-hmm. started to get put together, and and there was the a parliament of world religions, right? And this mm-hmm. and this sort of uh, is when uh, an actual person from India sort of got into the mix here. And That's I, right. I think the name is Vivekananda. Is that the... That's right, So yeah. talk, talk again Vivekananda. about them. Yeah, Swami Vivekananda. Yeah, he was the uh, Indian face of this sort of interest in world religions. We should also bear in mind that there was a European face in India to that interest, and that were that was the Theosophical Society. Uh, Madame Blavatsky uh, went to India, and she translated, interpreted the teachings of India into a sort of spiritualist mode that Westerners could get their heads around. Of course, she got just about everything wrong. <laughs> But it's interesting that the, the, the theosophists were, are to be credited with having sort of more so than Henry Thomas Colebrook with having put yoga on the radar screen of uh, both Indians and um, Europeans in India. And Vivekananda probably was exposed to yoga philosophy in part through the theosophists. So when he came to the World Parliament of Religions that was held at Chicago in 1894 and preached the gospel of reform Hinduism, he used a language that people could understand in no small part because he knew the language of theosophy. So he could talk about magnetism and energies and things like that in ways that people understood and they believed they were being schooled in Hindu thought. In a sense, they were being schooled in theosophical thought with kind of Hindu trappings. And so it has been for the last hundred or so years. So was he sort of cashing in on the the mystique of an ancient tradition and sort of putting it in the in the clothing of late 19th century um, spiritualism in a sense, right? That this Blavatsky had a few dealings with Mormons, for example, and uh, and, and it was in that same sort of vein of sort mm-hmm. of lending a, a near of intellectual sophistication uh, a science this is a scientific religion that's doesn't it's not weighed down by the trappings of uh, religious institutions it's this more ancient idea that now is combining with science to make this sort of super super spiritual yeah. sort of experience and so he's he's kind of following their lead a little bit but but also he sort of carries the credibility of uh, being from India right that's right that's right yeah he was a culture broker you know, the first great culture broker, I would say, uh, representing um, Hindu, enlightened Hindu thought to the West. So Vivekananda, I mean, apparently he put on these command performances. I think he lectured 12 or 14 times at the World Parliament, and he just stole the show and became the darling of Salon Society in Boston and New York and uh, and the New Age uh, movement, uh, which was significant, the, the, the scientism of the time which range from everything from Christian science to mesmerism and animal magnetism and the, the sorts of seances that were being held in uh, Boston salons and London salons. It was really a, a major uh, religious or mystical um, occurrence of the time. And, and this fit, he fit into that and it, his teachings of Indian thought fit into that quite nicely. Um, he was solicited by the Westerners, the Americans that he was giving his lectures to, to give them some sort of practical instruction. And by that, they had heard of yoga from him and they wanted to know more about how you do yoga, what, what are the foundations of practice. He did not practice the yoga postures, uh, apparently, um, but he hit upon the Yoga Sutra as a means to a dual end uh, as a culture broker. On the one hand, he would present the Yoga Sutra as a, an example of Indian rationality and science that was not um, buried in the trap, the superstitious trappings of what he saw to be uh, the Hinduism that he had to reform back in India, um, the sort of priestcraft that he had seen, he believed Hinduism had descended into. So he, he used the Yoga Sutra, which he wrote an important book on, um, 
in the last years of the 19th century uh, called the Raja Yoga as a platform both for promoting reformed Hindu thought as rational and scientific and superior to Western religion and science on the one hand, but also as a means to um, getting funding from the West to apply to the project of reforming Hinduism back in India. So he simultaneously founded the Vedanta Society in the West to spread the teachings of rational enlightened Hinduism to Westerners and the, Viva, and the uh, Ramakrishna Society in India for the reform of Hinduism in India. So he, he was able to use the Yoga Sutra, his writing on the Yoga Sutra and his teachings on the Yoga Sutra uh, to that dual purpose. I want to add too, he, he, he made a splash with Mormon leaders. There were Mormon leaders that were at the Parliament of Religion. There, yeah. there was some difficulty there in terms of Mormons not fitting in yet because of the issue of polygamy. But mm-hmm. uh, they had um, a Mormon leader called George Q. Cannon who came back to Utah uh, where the church was located and, and gave this really interesting speech and, and brought up Vivekananda. And, and there's this quote here where he says, you know, it's your typical sort of, it's a little condescending, but he says, mm-hmm. uh, listen, these these Asian religions, uh, they're not so imperfect and heathenish as we've been in the habit in this country of believing, mm-hmm. and that holiness, purity, charity are not the exclusive possessions of any church in the world, and every system produces men and women of the most exalted character. And he was talking about uh, Vivekananda, and his, you know, he walked away with this really great impression of him. Yeah, as did most of the people that came into contact with him. Apparently he, I mean, so he wrote the Raja Yoga. It was an overnight sensation, went into multiple editions, continues to be published widely in several translations. He wrote it in English. Um, it's not a very exact rendering of the Yoga Sutras. It's, uh, again, it's a, one that is um, shot through with the language of scientism, uh, animal magnetism, mesmerism, uh, waves and, and, and forces and so forth. But it, it captured the spirit of the time and was highly successful. He died very shortly after that. He, he died very young. Uh, he, I don't know if he just burned out from giving too many lectures or, or what. Um, but he set the die for the way that we in the West have understood yoga as a philosophy and a practice. And that has changed very little since then. Interestingly, in India, he didn't have much of an impact on uh, yoga. That India went, began its own yoga renaissance in the decades following Vivekananda's departure to the West, but they did not include Yoga Sutra in their syntheses. Um, and um, because American uh, immigration laws were very xenophobic from the early 20th century onward, there were virtually no Indian yoga gurus that could follow in Vivekananda's wake until the 1960s when immigration laws were uh, eased up. Now in Europe they didn't have such stringent laws, particularly in Britain, which of course India by then was part of the Commonwealth. So you do have yoga gurus in Britain where people like um, William Butler Yeats, the great Irish poet, was greatly influenced by and was a, a disciple of an Indian yogi, and they co-authored a translation of the Yoga Sutras. Um, and he, he wrote about yoga and the Yoga Sutras uh, in his own writings uh, late in life. And he was one of a number of um, Western literati who became drawn to the Yoga Sutras. This Sherwood was another, yeah. That's how the Beatles sort of got into it too, right? Was that about, so you say when it kind of was getting a, yeah. a lift in the 1960s, and is that... Yeah, it was a, a great sort of um, uh, synx, um, what's the term? Um, it was a happy coincidence that uh, the immigration laws were relaxed at just about the time that the Beatles went to India to meet Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I don't know on whose um, uh, urging they went to meet him, but, uh, you know, India had be, sort of become the the hip place to go if you were uh, a hippie. And uh, that's why I went to India the first time. And many in my cohort of religious studies, Hinduism scholars, went to India in sandals and looked for God before they started the academic study of Hinduism. 
Um, so yeah, the Beatles went there in the mid '60s and brought Maharishi Mahesh Yogi back to the States, and he was one of the pioneers of the this later generation. Uh, and many, many followed him, of course, and continue to follow him. Uh, and of course, it's been a two-way street for decades now as well, with many Westerners going to India to study at the feet of Indian yogis, who, when they're not traveling to the West, are based in places like Mysore uh, in India. So um, yes, that there was that kind of happy coincidence of this in uh, renewed or, or, or awakened interest in uh, Indian esotericism and the Really, um, the releasing or the the lifting of many of the uh, immigration barriers to um, Indians coming to the West, coming to the United States. So, how does that bring us to the present? I, I, I can't remember the figure that you give of of practitioners in the United States um, that today that practice yoga. How, mm. how many would you say there are? Well, I'm using other people's figures. The, the, the figure, most current figures, around 17 million. Americans. Just in the United States in alone, the US, right? That's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So bring bring it up to that point in time. How how is the Yoga Sutra then uh, still used then today? Um, there is what is now called certification that's required of yoga trainers in yoga studios and yoga centers across the country. Um, they have to do so many hours of both practical and theoretical instruction. And instruction in the Yoga Sutra is part of that required training. There has to be at least some knowledge of the theoretical grounds for the practice. Now, as I argue in the book, they chose the wrong text, but so be it. That has been sort of the iconic work that has been focused upon, if not fetishized, by the gurus and followers of those gurus in the modern yoga subculture. And they've all, again, as I said, they've basically taken their lead from Vivekananda. So there there have been dozens of translations, interpretations, commentaries on the Yoga Sutra written by these yoga gurus, some of them Western, some of them Indian, uh, which do what Vivekananda did, which is they take each verse of the sutra and then they give their interpretation of the verse and they go on to the next one. However, they... They do two things that Vivekananda did. They, like Vivekananda and like many commentators before him, they view the teachings of the Yoga Sutras as being uh, teachings of a Vedanta variety, a non-dualist variety in which union with God is the goal. Uh, They say that in their translations, which again is totally counter to the original teachings of the text. And then they take the Yoga Sutra as a guide to modern day practice. And you can do that if you take those eight those eightfold teachings, the Ashtanga Yoga, as the essence of the Yoga Sutras. Of course, that's the only part of the Yoga Sutras that is not philosophical. Um, but there as well, there are many other scriptures, texts, teachings on yoga that are far more adaptable to modern practice than the Yoga Sutra itself. You may have noticed I, I, I alternate between saying Yoga Sutra and Yoga Sutras. Both are mm-hmm. correct. Because um, the sutras are the individual aphorisms, right? Yeah. yeah. So I want to circle back to this idea of um, some of the controversies that you tackle and in, in the wider question of doing religious scholarship. And, and you said that you had initially got interested in this by actually going back to India and having experiences there. And now uh, it's been years and now you've you know, you've got into it academically as well and, and sort of had to change some of the views that you had about the tradition early on, uh, challenge some of the, the narratives, um, some of the controversies that, that you tackled in the book that I that I could pick up on without even really having any background in there is mm-hmm. the idea that, uh, that the, the Yoga Sutra wasn't all that central to yoga for a long time, that there are historically uh, an abundance of competing interpretations of the text that the 20th century revival of the text is fraught with with colonial politics and, and a little bit of fabrication here and there, maybe a little bit of marketing. And uh, even more recently, I, I sort of detected a hint of cynicism when you talked about big yoga. Uh, and, and, and so th- these are the types of things that someone who, who practices yoga you know, might, might catch their attention. And I'm interested, again, to sort of hear about um, how you've dealt with um, 
writing about those tensions because they they are tensions and it's and people will push back and 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 if you have a sense of wanting to be careful uh, when you write about those things or uh, just sort of reflect on dealing with some of the difficult elements of of a historical deconstruction yeah no it's it's very fraught um perhaps not so much as some of the other topics i wrote in my earlier works on other types of yoga but yes um from the outset, writing historically about traditions of which the adherents consider them to be ahistorical, transcending time and circumstance, you're already flying in the face of the uh, cherished beliefs of, of, of all Hindus. Um, so I see myself as a cultural historian writing about the culture of religious traditions uh, where the actors are center stage as opposed to the human actors as opposed to the, the divine ones or texts uh, as sort of disembodied powers uh, in the world and of course that 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 uh, ruffles feathers um, I've had reactions from Hindu fundamentalists uh, not as strong as some of my colleagues have uh, but um, that have been fairly strong and, and negative. Uh, and with respect to yoga, there is a group that many, even within the yoga subculture, refer to as the yoga fundamentalists. And these are people who take the teachings of their guru to be basically equivalent to the word of God and therefore um, not to be contested. And there as well, once again, if you're a fundamentalist, you're not going to be very open to uh, historical relativism. I mean, an obvious correlate would be the uh, pure uh, constitutionalists in, in, in the United States who feel that somehow they know what the founding fathers meant when they wrote the amendments to the bill, uh, to the Constitution, the second one, for example. <laughs> um, and uh, no, the, the history of the Constitution is the history of judicial review and in every period and circumstance, the, the, the teachings have to be understood in specific historical context, the, the present of the rendering of a new ruling by the Supreme Court in 1940 is not going to be the same as that in 2014. So too with these traditions that I study. But with that, did you was it difficult though to, did you have a point when you realized like, oh, the things that I had been told about this or that um, upon further research they're a lot more complicated. So did you ever have a period of disenchantment or of, of cognitive dissonance when you were confronting some of the new findings you were uh, coming across? Because you said that you didn't start the project in order to do that, but it, yet it happened. Did you have any period of trepidation there for yourself? Well, that's a strong word. I, I say that because it has happened to me with all the other books I've written, so I kind of could contextualize my uh, feeling of being at sea by saying, oh, yes, I've been here before. <laughs> now what do I do about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, And then I set about to sort of connecting the dots in the most plausible way that I could, uh, which meant, you know, layering uh, discourses of different people from different countries and different times and so forth and trying to respect every voice even as I contextualize them with respect to all the other voices which is about the best one can hope to do so of course I'm telling a story it's not the story um, but it's as close as I can get to what I think probably has been the case over the centuries if not the millennia um, and yeah I, I fully expect to um, to get negative feedback from the various constituencies the the uh, Hindu fundamentalists the yoga fundamentalists some non postmodern scholars and some uh, people like the uh, scholar from uh, Britain that we both uh, mentioned off cam uh, off, off uh, camera here um, so yeah, there are controversies among scholars, just as there are among uh, religious groups. There are uh, different constituencies that take different approaches. And uh, yeah, I tend to um, find my own path. For me, it seems like one of the things you were trying to do toward the end of the book, and maybe throughout the book, was to describe a text that has been 
and can be read in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Almost that there's um, what what someone called a fundamental ambiguity of the text. And for mm-hmm. some people, that sort of ambiguity would weaken the authority of the text or maybe even the value of mm-hmm. the text. In in just as the last um, the last comment here, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on on when a text is ambiguous and that where it has competing interpretations, uh, whether you see that as a weakness of of a text like the Yoga Sutra or perhaps uh, more of a strength. Well, it's it's a weakness for anyone who would try to decant all of those aphorisms into a coherent set of teachings. And that's why I have so much respect for Rajendra Lal Mitra, who's, who, who managed to pull it off better than anyone else, I would say. It's a strength, on the other hand, in as much as when a text is vague or ambiguous, or the language of a text is even difficult to recover, that allows people to sort of pour in their own interpretations and, and morph it into whatever use they wish to do, wish to uh, apply it to it. So uh, this, I believe the second most translated work in the world after the Bible is the Tao Te Ching, which is a, a scripture of Taoism. And like the Yoga Sutra, the language of it is opaque, it's aphoristic, it's elliptical, it's ancient. And there as well, you read two translations of the Tao Te Ching and you wonder if they're the same text because uh, because the, the, the they're so different. So. Um, this uh, has allowed perhaps for the survival of the Yoga Sutras in a world in which its language is unrecoverable for all intents and purposes, the original intent. And uh, this has given it, uh, well, it's had three lives and perhaps it's going to get up to nine uh, <laughs> That's David Gordon White. He's the author of a biography of the Yoga Sutra. It's a volume in the Princeton University Press's really good series on the lives of great religious books. I recommend that series. I recommend this book as well. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, David. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Blair.